This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 275. So if you think about, okay, go to college and get married, buy a house, buy a car, have 2.2 kids, all of that, it really is built on a foundation of a mortgage, a car payment, consumer debt that has required a fixed salary and a job to cover those fixed payments. Hello, and welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. It's the podcast dedicated to your personal and your professional growth. My name is Jeff, and I believe that if you want to achieve true success in business and in life, then intentional and consistent reading is a must. Now, the Read to Lead podcast has been designed to help you narrow this reading list and also bring you key insights and valuable ideas from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. One author doing lots of inspiring work is a woman named Diane Mulcahy, and she is the author of the book, The Gig Economy, The Complete Guide to Getting Better Work, Taking More Time Off, and Financing the Life You Want. I'll ask Diane to share about tips for building connections without the trappings of traditional networking, advice for where to begin if you're dissatisfied with your current job and exploring options outside of traditional work, simple ways to more easily finance the life you want, and much, much more. But first, this episode is special for a couple of reasons, not the least of which is we get to talk about one of my favorite topics, non-traditional work, also because I get to talk to Diane Mulcahy, and because today we mark a special anniversary. It was six years ago today that the Read to Lead podcast was officially launched. And after nearly 300 episodes and millions of downloads, it's my hope that this isn't the last anniversary that we celebrate. Thanks so much for listening. Whether you're brand new to the podcast or you've been listening since the beginning, you are an integral part to all that we do here. If you enjoy the podcast, I want to encourage you today to share this episode with someone you think it might help. And if you have a favorite episode from your time spent listening, I'd love to know what it is. Shoot me an email to let me know. Jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. Diane Mulcahy is an adjunct lecturer at Babson College, where she created and teaches the Gig Economy, a popular MBA course that Forbes.com named one of the top 10 most innovative business school classes in the country. She's also a senior fellow at the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation, by the way. Her work in venture capital and entrepreneurship has been featured on NPR and in The Economist, Forbes, Fortune, The Harvard Business Review, The Huffington Post, The New Yorker, and other national media. She's also a frequent speaker at conferences and universities worldwide. Her most recent book actually came out about two and a half years ago. I'm late to the party. It's called uh, The Gig Economy, The Complete Guide to Getting Better Work, Taking More Time Off, Hallelujah, and Financing the Life You Want. I am thrilled to have her here. Better late than never. Diane, welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I know I'm guilty of this, and I think many others are as well. I kind of before reading your book, I had sort of a one or two, maybe a handful of industries in mind when I think of the term gig economy. So I think it's important for us to kind of begin our conversation by uh, defining what you mean by that. I often associate it with things like Uber or, you know, uh, a designer uh, publishing or offering their skills on a site like 99designs or something like that. Uh, but it's, it's a lot more than that, isn't it? 
It is a lot more than that. And I think that's an excellent place to start because it is a common perception that when people hear the term the gig economy, they think, oh, we're just going to talk about Uber drivers or people who work, you know, do tasks on TaskRabbit. And that is a segment of the gig economy, but it is a very small segment, which I think is a surprise to a lot of people. Most surveys and data put it at less than 5% of what I'm going to tell you about is the gig economy is people who work casual um, tasks on a platform. The way that I talk about the gig economy is if you're not a full-time employee and a full-time job, then you're in the gig economy. So you could be a consultant or an independent contractor, an advisor, a freelancer. You could be a person who has a side gig. Um, All of those people I consider in the gig economy. So it's very broad. It crosses all income and education levels and most industries and sectors. Well, I would imagine the internet has had a lot to do with this, but what, in your view, is driving the growth of of the gig economy? Is it just the internet? Is it other things? It is other things. And, you know, if you think about it, people have been working this way always. So Mm. people in the creative industries or crafts and trade, they have been working independently doing gigs for a long time. So in many ways, it's nothing new under the sun. What I think (laughs) is interesting is how it has grown so rapidly, really in the course of a generation. So if you look at the baby boomers, you know, they entered a workforce where they expected realistically mm. to have a career with one or two companies and then retire on a pension. I can tell you that my students in my MBA class have none of those expectations. <laughs> the, the workforce has completely changed and it's changed that quickly. So there, there are a couple of drivers to the gig economy. One is companies. And what we see when we look at companies is that they aren't creating jobs anymore mm. the way that they used to. So the job creation rate is at historic lows. It fell during the recession in 2008, and it never recovered. Mm. So companies are organizing their work differently. Instead of creating jobs, they're creating work and projects and assignments and tasks. The other thing companies are doing is they aren't hiring full-time employees. I don't know if if you've kept up with the recent articles on Google, for example, and Mm. this isn't to pick on them, but they have more independent workers and temporary workers as part of their workforce than they have full-time employees. Oh, I didn't know that. So companies are increasingly saying, you know, we need people to get work done, but we don't need for them to be full-time employees. And in fact, full-time employees are rigid, they're inefficient, and they're very expensive. So we're going to look at all other options before we hire a full-time employee. So that's one driver is what companies are doing. On the other side, uh, the good news is that workers are also driving this trend. Mm. And you know, one reason is that People have figured out that there's no job security in our traditional jobs economy. So they're figuring out that they need to take control of their own security and creating a portfolio of gigs gives them that. The other thing is that workers want to work differently. It's pretty amazing when you look at 
surveys of traditional full-time employees, Mm. what they reveal is that employees are not engaged or satisfied or productive or happy uh, (laughs) at their jobs, and they sit in very expensive real estate. When you interview independent workers, they are all those things. They're engaged, they're happy, they're challenged, they find meaning in their work, they're productive, and they do not sit in expensive commercial real estate. (laughs) So, I'm not saying that the gig economy is the only answer, but it's certainly an answer that's working for a lot of people who find that the constraints of a traditional job aren't suitable for them. Mm, And and you touched on this, but I I like the distinction you make, Diane, in the book between jobs and and work. Can can you dig into that a little bit more? Yes. So... We're used to talking about jobs um, in our economy. You know, what is the job creation rate? Do you have a job? Uh, what, what is your next job going to be? When people think about creating a career and a professional life, they think about getting a job. I think what's happening in the gig economy is it's changing that construct. So it's really all about getting work. It doesn't, the work doesn't have to be organized into a full-time job. It can be working with a company on a project or getting hired to perform an assignment or a task. One example that's concrete that I think might help your listeners picture what I'm talking about Mm. is if you think about the traditional media world, there used to be a lot of full-time reporter jobs. Mm. Those jobs have gone away by and large. And now what is left, though, is plenty of freelance work. So the, mm. the, the articles still need to get written. The reporting still needs to get done. The paper still needs to get published, right? Whether it's mm. online or in physical form. But how those companies have organized to get that work done has completely changed. And having come from radio, another traditional medium, I know a lot of radio folks who have a studio like mine in their home and are doing their shows, recording shows for radio stations and then sending them the files and they plug it into a computer and it airs as if they're live right there in the studio when they recorded it last week. And they're doing this for numerous stations. Very, very similar sort of a scenario. Absolutely. Well, uh, what are some of your tips for those who want to uh, build their connections, uh, which we're, you know, we need to be aware of and, and, and intentional about without the trappings of traditional networking, that whole, you know, showing up in a ballroom somewhere and, and as you say in the book, drinking bad wine and <laughs> <laughs> talking to people that, uh, you know, that we're never going to truly do business with. Yeah, I think everybody hates those traditional networking events, yet they persist. <laughs> they, they so they, there's there's some kind of power or inertia around them, for sure. <laughs> but thankfully, there are alternatives, which, which I do talk about in the book. And I think a couple of things that people can do pretty easily is, one, create content. Just like what you're doing by creating this podcast, just like what I did by writing this book or writing an article or doing this podcast, looking for ways to create content that you can put out into the world that expresses your ideas, your perspectives, your insights, that can be speaking. Some people are talkers, right? So doing a podcast or doing speaking um, or hosting webinars can be ways for people um, who like to talk to get out into the world. 
But for those of us who are more introverted, writing, writing articles, writing books, uh, writing a blog can be another way. And that allows people to find you and come to you. And that can be a lot less stressful. The other thing I think that people can do pretty easily is curate gatherings. And what I mean by that is instead of going and attending a networking event, why not host one? Mm. And again, for the introverts among us, that can be (laughs) as small and simple as inviting somebody for coffee Mm. or for lunch. It can be one person and connecting with that person and getting to know them or initiating a phone call or doing an interview one-on-one. It could be a small group gathering like a book club or um, a luncheon based around a topic or an industry gathering, or it could be something larger. But I think when you curate a gathering, you get to pick who's in the room, you know who's in the room, and it feels much more worthwhile and meaningful. And it it frankly gives you a lot more visibility as the leader. So even if you don't manage to talk to everybody, you're known. Mm. So those are two, I think, alternatives that avoid the big hotel room, the bad lighting, (laughs) and the terrible line. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Love it. Well, you you touched on uh, workers by and large today, according to recent studies, being dissatisfied, many of them with their with their current job situation. Uh, Most want to do something about it, uh, but they're either uh, not sure where to start. I think in a lot of cases or there's fear associated with venturing out into this sort of portfolio style living versus one job. What what advice would you give that individual who's afraid or or doesn't know where to start or or both? Yeah, that's so common. That's incredible. Incredibly common. So first of all, I would say don't beat yourself up for that. Like it's, you know, change can be scary. It can be scary to think about leaving a full-time job. I think there are two things that anybody who's in a full-time job who's thinking about going out and working differently or independently can do that um, that hopefully won't induce more fear and can help actually reduce the fear. One is create an exit strategy. And What that means is figuring out a way and a runway, a timeline Mm. for you to think about leaving. I think one of the things that makes people really fearful is they think about quitting their job and they immediately think of doing it, you know, the next week. (laughs) And they're like, oh, my God, that seems so stressful. Mm. And it is. But there are different timelines that you can put in place. You can make a plan for quitting your job in a year Mm. or in two years. And oftentimes with that kind of space, it really opens up possibilities for preparation. So the exercise that I have my readers do in my book is to imagine that they knew that they were going to get laid off in six months. Mm. And you can change that timeline. It could be a year. What would you do if Mm. you knew that? If someone, if your boss came and said, you're going to get laid off in six months, what would you do to start preparing for that? What would you do professionally, financially, personally, make a list of all of those things. Talk about that list with people who have already made transitions or survived a layoff successfully, and then start executing that. And it's such a powerful exercise because just by having a plan Mm. and a list, suddenly it seems like you're in control of the situation and the power lies within you. And that can be very calming and can really help reduce the fear. Mm. So create an exit strategy, that's number one. The second tip that I have, or a piece of advice, is to start small and mm. get a side gig. Mm. Um, 
I think there's no reason to make a huge dramatic leap off the cliff, right? You don't have to quit your full-time job and go storming off into the sunset and hang out your own shingle. (laughs) It can be something that looks much lower risk than that and lower cost. So if you're sitting in a full-time job, you know, think about what is something that you're curious about doing or interested in doing, and is there a way that you can experiment with that? Start doing something on the side, assess whether there's demand for it, whether you can reach the people who might be interested in buying your product or service. You can assess what people are willing to pay for it. You can figure out how much demand there is. And you can decide, is this something that looks viable? You know, is could I leave my full-time job and do this and make the kind of living that I want to make? And you can do it in a very low-risk, low-cost way while you're working. So it's an incremental step, but one that can, again, be really helpful in reducing these kind of fears uh, that we have by providing information and providing real evidence that this could be uh, successful. You touched on something that I thought was interesting. I I know in my case, six years ago, around this time, I I was planning an exit strategy at the last radio station I worked at. And my timeline at that time was about nine months. Uh, And I think looking back, part of the reason it was nine months was because of some fears I had and thinking that, well, nine months, that gives me time to change my mind. (laughs) (laughs) But about two months into that nine months, I got laid off. And it it ended up being the kick in the rear that I needed to actually do this because I'm not sure, I'm not certain looking back, I would have ever had the courage to do it. I even told a friend like a month before that happened, I said, you know, I I think the best thing that could happen to me would would be to get let go. I I don't know if I've got the courage to really do this. And a month later, that's exactly what happened. So, and here we are, (laughs) six years removed. (laughs) It all worked out. It all all worked out. Uh, Now, part three of, of Diane's book covers a topic called Financing the Life that you want. I'm curious to know, uh, Diane, what you mean when you say, think access, not ownership. Yeah. So what I mean by that is to think about ways in your financial life that you can access or rent or lease the kind of lifestyle that you want rather than own it. Mm. And to me, this is the personal finance revolution of our generation, Mm. this ability to access and not own, because ownership, generally speaking, requires debt. And debt requires fixed payments that require Mm. fixed revenue or income to cover them. And debt is a huge killer of flexibility, Mm. financial flexibility. So the idea that you can access whatever kind of lifestyle you've decided that you want to live, but you don't have to take on the debt to purchase it, you can simply rent or lease it on demand for periods of time, introduces enormous choice and financial flexibility. And the example I like to give is uh, I haven't owned a car in 10 years. So instead of owning my transportation, I access it. I live in a city and I can access zip cars if I want to go out of town for the weekend, or I can take Ubers or Lyfts or taxis to get around town or the subway. I walk a lot. I can ride a bike. There are a lot of different ways that I access the transportation I need to get me from point A to point B. And what that saves me is the need to 
save or borrow a whole bunch of capital to buy a car. And it saves me from the fixed costs of insuring, maintaining, gassing, and garaging a car. Mm. So I have a lot of flexibility um, around transportation costs in my life. You reminded me, um, my wife and I have two cars sitting in the driveway, and then we have no payments, thankfully. They were paid for a long time ago, but they sit in the driveway most of the time because we both work from home. And it's like, do we really need two cars sitting in the driveway? Could we pare down to one? It's rethinking sort of these traditional ways of doing things that we just sort of do because we've always done them. I, I think that's 100% true. And I think it's very easy to kind of default into, you know, this traditional American dream, which really mm. is built on a foundation of debt. Mm. and ownership. So if you think about, okay, I, you know, I'm going to go to college and get married, buy a house, buy a car, have 2.2 kids, all of that. It really is built on a foundation of a mortgage, a car payment, you know, consumer debt. And that requires or has required a fixed salary and a job to cover those fixed payments. When you have variable costs, like, you know, transportation, you might go away a lot for the weekend in the summer, but not so much in the winter. And therefore, your transportation costs go down. Um, you have a lot more flexibility. You don't have to earn the same amount every single month to cover those costs because they're flexible and variable. So it's really a different way of thinking about building a lifestyle from the ground up. And it starts with what kind of lifestyle do I want? What are the things that are important to me? What matters? And how do I create a lifestyle that reflects that and ultimately build something that I want to live? And I think that one of the things that I find when I coach clients and teach my MBA students is it's incredibly common for people to stop and reflect when, you know, we talk about things like this and to realize that they have, they've bought a lifestyle that they're not interested in living. <laughs> <laughs> and when they realize they don't have to be living it and they don't have to be buying it, it it's shifting. It's life changing. That's not to say that unwinding it is easy or fast in all cases, but it can be done. And it's amazing what my clients and students have done after mm. going through some of these reflection exercises and thinking about what really matters to them and what they really want to spend their money on. I am uh, on this kick right now fascinated with those who have decided to sell their homes and buy an RV and travel the country and work from the road. And uh, my wife and I haven't begun RV shopping or renting yet, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we, we certainly are looking at, well, why do we have to wait till later in life to travel? Why can't we do that now? And everything that I do for, for my work can be done from anywhere. You know, it doesn't have to be done uh, here. And, and along those lines, talking about, you know, outdated sort of ideas and concepts, is, is the concept of retirement no longer relevant in, in the gig economy? To be honest, I'm not sure it's relevant in our traditional jobs economy. <laughs> I mean, you know, realistically, baby boomers are reaching retirement age, and some of them are already there. Mm. And what we're already seeing is that it doesn't look the way that it used to, yeah. um, because companies have stopped providing lifelong pensions, which used to support people 
in retirement. Mm. So the people that are retiring today, even if they've worked in full-time jobs their whole careers, they're not walking away with an annuity stream of income. Mm. They're walking away with whatever they've saved. And most of the time, unfortunately, what they've saved is insufficient to support a couple of decades of income-free living. So what we're seeing is um, people are working longer. And the idea of a traditional retirement where you break with your work life and then go live 20 years on the beach or the golf course, <laughs> that's kind of gone away. And, and, and it's not all negative. It's not only because people don't have the financial wherewithal. It's also because people don't find that idea as appealing. Most people want to remain, you know, they know they're or they hope they're going to live for for much longer and they want to remain engaged and active. For most people they don't they don't want the constraints of a full-time job. They want to be able to travel or not work as hard, but they do want to remain engaged and the gig economy has really come at the right time for those people because it is so much easier to continue to remain involved in work through the gig economy than it used to be. I mean, if you wanted to remain working 10 or 15 years ago, you used to have to get a part-time job. And those were hard to get and they were scarce. Now, there are so many opportunities for consulting or working on platforms or, you know, networking with clients to find with or with ex-colleagues to find projects that you can work on, or even doing something totally unrelated to what you spent your career doing. There are so many opportunities that are so much easier to access that um, it really opens up the possibilities for what retirement could look like and how it could look different. And as you say, for a lot of people who are retired, travel is very big or snowboarding. You know, mm -hmm. they want to live more than one place. And people can do that now. It's very straightforward to, in many cases, depending on your line of work, work from anywhere. Well, I've got a couple of questions, uh, Diane, I want to ask you that aren't directly related to the book. Uh, before we do that, though, is there anything else from the book you want to make sure that, that we know? I think the key thing to know is that there are a lot of exercises and kind of hands-on assignments that are in the book that can help your listeners kind of work through these issues. So it is, you know, if you are interested in making the transition, there's the opportunity to actively work on that while you're reading it. Well, uh, think about the books that you've read the last few years, Diane, or maybe over the course of, of your career, if, if need be, that, that have had a significant impact on you. And if you can, share how or why they, they impacted you as they did. Yeah, you know, I actually, um, I was glad that you kind of teed up this question because I had to go through my Kindle to see what I had read. <laughs> I read on a variety of topics, kind of what, you know, I go through little mini obsessions and, <laughs> and, and read things um, in groups. And one of the things I like to, you know, I work in financial services as well. One of the things I really like to read is kind of financial crises kind of books. Mm -hmm. So with that context, I will tell you, um, one of the books I really loved is called Essentialism. And what I loved about that was it, it did some of the same work that I try to do in my book, which is to 
help people distill what matters to them mm-hmm. and then build up around that. And this book did that in a different way, but the premise of that was incredibly appealing to me. So I, it's not a long book, um, but it's a very powerful book. So I really enjoyed that. The two financial books that I read that were really interesting were The Big Short and Dark Money. And I think those are both relevant, you know, if you think if you kind of look around at what's going on in the political system and where we are in the economic cycle, those are just interesting, informative, contextual reads if people are interested in sort of the broader financial markets. So there's three. Uh, yeah, one of those dark money I had not heard of. I've heard of the others. In fact, Greg, uh, essentialism author, has has been on the on the show to talk about that very book. Love those oh, recommendations. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I know you had, I th- or if I recall, a fear of public speaking at, at one time, as did I, but have eventually turned that around, and and now not only through your college course, but in, in in other venues, speak pretty regularly. And so, talk a bit about that transition, if you would, and and maybe some of your tips, Diane, for delivering a, a talk that's that's impactful and, and memorable. Yeah, that's true. I was terrified of public speaking. I, I think I think a lot of people are in that boat. Mm. Um, and I just kind of made up my mind at one point that it was really starting to hold me back where I was in my career, and I needed to figure out a way to to get over it. And I my 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 theory was that it was a skill like any other skill, like riding a bike, like you know, learning anything that seems fearful at first. And and I was trying to figure out a safe environment to learn. And I was debating joining Toastmasters. And then um, I had started to work, do some work at Babson College, kind of on a pro bono basis. And it was coming up on the summer term. And they asked me if I would teach a core course. Mm-hmm. So the syllabus, everything was already set. I just had to deliver it. Okay. And I took the big leap and I said I would do it. And and that's, you know, it was in a classroom environment with students. It was interactive. It just felt like probably one of the safest spaces mm. I was going to be able to get. Um, and so I started that way. And I guess the rest is history. <laughs> um, in, in terms of an impactful talk, I, there are two things that I always try to do. One is I avoid PowerPoint. I try to give talks that are structured as interviews, as fireside chats, as discussions, as interactive. Um, If I have to give a traditional talk, I use slides that only have pictures, no words. I Mm. think PowerPoint just drains the energy from a room. It's a a real buzzkill. And the second thing I do is um, I really try to think about, you know, who the audience is, what matters to them, where they are. So I'm not a person who delivers kind of the same talk. Uh, You know, I I spend time figuring out, like, who are these people? You know, what are they doing? Like, are they familiar with this topic? What are they likely to be concerned about? And I I try to go for those issues head on. So those are my two big tips. I love it. Now, this next question, I want to point out, um, I had planned to ask you this question before I read in your book uh, your love of being asked this question by someone who was getting to know you. <laughs> and that question is, what are you working on right now that you're excited about? Or if you're not working on right now, is around the corner that, that you're excited about? That's right. And I, I talk about that in my networking and connecting chapter where mm-hmm. – you know, how do you move beyond small talk and what mm. other questions can you ask? So I love that you asked that. 
So the, the the main thing I'm working on right now that I'm excited about that's quite timely is I just launched a series on, I, I'm a Forbes contributor, so I write regularly for Forbes, mm. and I just launched a series called Women in the Gig Economy. And my thought there is to feature women who are, you know, just doing interesting things coming up with amazing insights or research or perspectives or are have uh, you know unique or challenging thoughts um, mm. and to feature that it's I think a really interesting forum so I published my first article in the series and I featured the work of the uh, ex-dean of students at Columbia University and her research, uh, which she has conducted over the past decade, about what separates people who thrive in their careers after they've had a loss or a change um, from those that don't. And it's fascinating. So I'm really excited about that. And I'm like, like you as a podcast host, I'm lining up interviews and, mm-hmm. inter, you know, interviewing people. It's a really interesting, fun process. Well, you can find out uh, more about Diane at her website, dianemulcahy.com. We'll link to that uh, in the show notes. And again, the book is called The Gig Economy, The Complete Guide to Getting Better Work, Taking More Time Off, and Financing the Life You Want. This was a lot of fun, Diane. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. This was a great conversation. To grab the book to find out more about Diane, where to find her on social media, and to check out those books she recommended and more, visit the show notes page I've created just for this episode. You'll find that at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 275 for episode 275. For questions or comments on the show or maybe to wish Read to Lead a happy birthday, you can email me directly, jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. That does it for another week. I look forward to seeing you the next time we get together. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.